Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at verse number 25. Now, before we do that, real quick, running start. Um, Paul is writing, and I say this every week, so if you're here every week, you know this. If you're new, then here's a way to give you a running start. Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul, and again, I say Paul, not knowing who the author of Hebrews is, but um, believing it's Paul, or, or it doesn't really matter, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that, that Jesus writes the Bible and that the Word of God comes through Jesus in these last days. So the writer here is talking to a group of Hebrews who grew up under the system of Moses and under the system of laws, and they're related to God based on the Old Testament covenant. Now, you have in your Bible, between Matthew and Malachi, you have a white page in your Bible that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so maybe folks who, who, who were alive during the Old Testament, and sometime in their life, Jesus appears on the scene, he dies on a cross, Paul, the church begins, they begin to minister, and these folks are coming to Jesus, and many of them were. And so Paul is writing to this group who culturally was Jewish their whole life and now have become Christian, and, and there's this struggle. Like, like all of us have this tendency to go back to the thing that, that was calling us or drawing us before. I've seen it here in our church many times. I've seen where folks have, have, have experienced the truth and experienced grace and for some reason felt a call to go back to law and regulations. There's something about us that we feel like we have to earn it that we have to do something to deserve God's blessing and God's approval over our lives. And when we tell folks that you can't do nothing to add or take away from God's blessing and God's approval over your life, it, it sometimes just feels like that's too easy to be true. It's too good to be true. But yet, there's nothing you can do to add or take away from what Jesus did on the cross for you. Now, we are called to good works as Christ followers and as Christians. We just know that our works don't save us and we don't work towards salvation. We don't work towards improving. And as soon as you say, I talked to a, an individual and maybe I'll kind of tell on myself a little bit. And I asked him, I said, what do you put your faith in for eternal security? How do you know you're going to heaven? And he told me that he puts his faith in Jesus Christ and continual, um, well, how did he say it? He said continual um, attendance in such and such church. And he put the two things together. He said, I put, how do I know I'm going to heaven? Because of my faith in Jesus Christ and my continual, and he didn't just say attendance, he said good standing with my church. And again, whenever you add an and to anything, um, you're, you're taking away from the grace of God. And, and this young man, unfortunately, he didn't understand the ramifications of what he's saying, but really what he's saying is that what Jesus did on the cross is not good enough. It wasn't enough to save me that I have to do something to add to um, what Jesus did in order for that to be good enough for me to go to heaven. And again, we thoroughly, the Bible thoroughly rejects that idea. It's blasphemous to think that you can add to anything that Jesus did to make it sufficient. And the blood of Jesus Christ forgives a man of all sins, the Bible says. And, and so we have a right standing with God based on what Jesus did. And then after we become Christ followers and after we develop relationship with Jesus through his word and through relationship and through spending time with him and knowing his voice as Jesus said we would in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep know me and they follow me and they know my voice and I know them. And as we develop this relationship through the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, no longer just coming next to us, but now is inside of us. And the Bible says the word of God is spiritually discerned. And that Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, he helps you understand the things you read in the Bible. If you've read the Bible and you were confused or you didn't get it, 
You know the old saying that dead men tell no tales, the pirate's tale? Well, the same is true because if you're dead before you were born again in Christ, dead men don't read too well. Dead men don't understand the Word of God so well. But as you become alive in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in your heart, and we're going to study that in Hebrews chapter 11 because it's going to say without faith it's impossible to please God. And so many people want to approach God on an intellectual basis. And if I can intellectually understand God and understand the Bible and Christianity, then I'll believe. You're going to die and go to hell in that condition. Because you'll never intellectually figure it out first. You first have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds backwards. I know that sounds wonky. But that's the system that God has created that you have to put your faith in Him. But the faith that God calls you to put in Him is substance. It's evidence. It's concrete. It's not a blind faith. And as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you read the Bible, things come to life. And then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about things that he wants you to do for the kingdom of God. To give, to serve, to, to be a part, to come to Harvest Crusade, and by faith to, to invest in the kingdom of God with your life and to do good works. But again, we know those good works don't save us. Now, Paul is talking to this group of, of Hebrew believers who, again, I'm sure the heart of God is reaching out and loving these folks because for so many years, they, they faithfully followed God the way they were taught, the way that God prescribed even, and now God changes, which is rare. It only happened one time in human history. It's never going to happen again, never happened before, where God is in the middle of somebody's life going to change the prescription of how to follow him. Change the, the relationship. Now listen, the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some things change and some things never change. For example, how did folks in the Old Testament, according to the law of Moses, get saved or go to heaven? Well, let me tell you this first. How do folks in the New Testament get saved and go to heaven? By, by faith through grace, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. You are saved. Everybody say, I'm saved. Grace. Through grace, grace. By faith. In Jesus Christ. Guess how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, guess how they were saved? They were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What do you mean? They lived thousands of years before Jesus. Listen, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible is clear that men go to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody in the Old Testament, they looked forward to a coming Messiah. They looked forward to Jesus, and, and it was accounted to them, their faith was accounted to them for righteousness. Guess what it says in the New Testament about you and I? Your faith is accounted to you for righteousness. And we look back to the cross. They just simply looked forward to the cross, but in the cross all men have been saved before and after. And we're saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. I always say that backwards. <laughs> we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So again, Paul is speaking to this group in verse 25 of chapter 10. Paul says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But Pastor Chris, you, you, you talked about this last week. Yeah, it's so good. I'm going to talk about it again this week. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Yes, you do. No, I'm, I, I'm teasing, right? Like, you, you don't have to go to church to be saved. Church is not what saves you. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. You could come here every week. It doesn't mean you're going to heaven. If you're going to heaven, that's between you and Jesus, and you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, and you believe on him, and you received him in your life. You have personal relationship with him. You're going to heaven. You could come to church every week. 
You could go sit in your, in your garage for the next month. It ain't going to make you a car. Sitting in church ain't going to make you a Christian. But listen, when, when folks tell me, and I hear this all the time, I heard it recently, and, I, and because I was coming to this verse, God gave me somebody, put somebody in my life who said these famous words to me, and I was so thankful they did. And if I'm being super honest, they didn't say them directly to me. They said them to my son, and my son came to me and said, this person in our life just told me, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And listen, no, you don't. The thief on the cross never went to, never went to church, and he's in heaven. He got saved. He was a little hung up. We talked about last week. He couldn't get, come down. Had he had the opportunity. But listen, you could point somebody to this verse if they ever tell you that or if you feel that. God says that, and it's not, it, you, know, you know what the, the crux of the matter is? Look at the verse for yourselves, verse 25. The crux of the matter is not coming to church. The crux of the matter is what? It's not obedience. It starts with an A. It's in the verse. It's the assembling Who? Who? With who? Assembling ourselves with who? That's the crux of church. And yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be a church. But listen, as Christ followers, there's a clear, distinctive directive from God's word for your life that you are to gather together with other believers on a regular basis. And if you stop gathering together with believers on a regular basis, and in the, the day and the age we live in, we thank God for the internet and the opportunity that we have to share the gospel with millions of people around the world. Pastor Terry in Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake, he was just telling me recently that his online uh, ministry is reaching tens of millions of people in India. And he doesn't know how or why, and he's thankful that he's sharing the gospel to, to people that are, just have tuned in to his program in India. And, and so we, we thank God. You know, the evangelist D.L. Moody, famous, famous Christian evangelist and pastor, and he said that he, he wouldn't go to sleep at night unless he told somebody every day of his life about Jesus. And he tells a story about being on a cold, wintry night in Chicago where he lived. And it was late, late at night. And he had got in bed, and he realized that the whole day he never told anybody about Jesus. And because of his conviction and because of his commitment to God, the famous evangelist says he got out of bed and he went in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, snow falling. I guess midnight already passed. He missed the day, but he counted it anyways. So he goes outside. Maybe it was 11.59. And he goes through the streets finding somebody because he couldn't go to bed until he told somebody about Jesus and shared his faith with them. And so, again, um, the idea here is that we are assembled together ministering and loving and then God says that he gave each one of you a gift and the gift listen you know the thing about the gifts none of the gifts are for yourself every one of the gifts are for you to share with somebody else except for one the gift of tongues we talked about it again kind of repeating some of the stuff from last week speaking in tongues the rest of them God gives you a gift so you can come and be a part of the body God says that the, the body of Christ is a body. Paul even describes it, and he says a hand and an arm and a leg and, and a mouthpiece and eyes and, and every part. What part of the body are you? Listen, if you're the lungs, if you're the heart, we need you. We're not going to breathe so well without you. We're not going to function well without every part of the body together. And so know that, that, that when you're a part of a body, you're a part of a church, God has gifted, given you a gift and a call and, and a place to serve within that body. And so serve. Find a place to serve. Listen, I, I, I try to give plenty of opportunities for you guys to find a place to plug in and serve somewhere. But ultimately, I'm not responsible for you to find a place to serve. 
The Holy Spirit is very capable of guiding and leading you and giving you opportunities. And if you have a heart that you want to serve, God will absolutely open a door for you to serve somewhere. You know, God's Holy Spirit will speak to you. We have plenty of outreach opportunities as a church that we could be doing in our own community. And, and tons of things and tons of opportunities to serve. And if you want to serve Jesus and be a part of the body, God will give you that opportunity. Amen? Okay, now verse 26. Listen, we're going to get into some doctrinal things that the book of Hebrews is dealing with. And um, part of it was easy for me just to go to chapter 11 this morning because I could have skipped this really hard part. But look at verse number 26. And it says, for if we sin will, willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Do you remember in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, Paul is talking about this difficult subject. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. And it talks about, it sounds there in chapter 6, like you can lose your salvation. And the folks that he's talking about in chapter 6 have tasted, and all of these things, they're, they're on the inside, and they left, and they fell away. And what I believe, and, and where we stand on this lose your salvation issue, is that you can't lose your salvation, like you lose your car keys, or you lose something. But there are, there are some clear examples in the Bible where people have left their salvation. And, and as you, you made a decision to follow Christ, they made a decision to turn and renounce Christ and have walked away and, and, and denounced their faith in Christ. And we see that. So I don't think you can lose your salvation. But I think and we see people who have willingly left their salvation. Now in chapter 10 here, Paul, what does this mean if you sin willfully? If you sin willfully, it says there's no more need to return again to repentance. Does that mean that if today I, I you know, knowingly plan a sin and, and go and sin, which we're all guilty of, by the way, that, that there's no more need for me to turn to repentance? And again, I want you guys reading this verse, you know, thinking through it yourself. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a, a sacrifice for sin. Listen, understanding it, that way is contrary to what the Bible teaches all the way through. Paul says, um, or John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a? Come on, y'all. There we go. Liar! Okay, right? Princess bride. God knows you're going to sin. He knows you're going to sin tomorrow. Let me encourage you with something. God's not disappointed. He's not going to be, you know, oh, man, I had no idea that you were a sinner and you were going to blow it tomorrow. I really had hoped you were going to walk a straight line. Paul makes it clear, as Christ followers, we should never use it as an excuse and willfully live a life of sin. But we're going to sin. And there's going to come times in our life where we're going to make bad choices and we're going to willingly walk into sin. But if you repent, if you turn, and the Bible is very clear, very, 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 very clear. If you come back to me, God will receive you. John says, if you are faithful and just to confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And, 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 and you can't have too hard of a heart that, that if you come to God, he, he will not honor your request to come home. The prodigal son was, was, was a creep in all of his ways. Totally disrespected his family and his dad and his God, and he walked away blasphemously from the faith. And he hit rock bottom and he came home. And the father received him with open arms. 
The Bible says in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, he said that the prodigal son, when he was coming home, the father saw him from afar off. Listen, there's only one way that the father sees you from afar off. He has to be on the roof looking expectantly. The son was gone for years. And every day the father sat on the roof and watched and hoped that his son would come home. And it said he saw his son afar off, meaning the father was hoping and praying and expecting that he would come home. And it says that he put the, the robe on him. And he, and he slaughtered the fatted calf and he put a ring on him. And he embraced him and he welcomed his son home. And his son had this speech all prepared that I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Maybe I could just be a servant in your house. And the, and, the, and the father cut him off in the middle of his speech. And he said he rejoiced because my son who was lost is home. And God's call all the way through the scripture, all the way through. We're studying Jeremiah right now on, on Wednesday nights. And Jeremiah is a book that is 100% full. There's two words just repeated over and over and over again in Jeremiah. Backsliding and return. The nation has backslidden and God says return. The nation has backslidden and God says come home, return, return. And a heart of a, bro a, a broken heart of a father who's weeping over his children, calling and inviting them to come home. So listen, God invites you to come home. And in this verse, it's dealing with something tough. It's dealing with an apostate situation. And yes, there, there can be a place in your heart. And the Bible says every time you sin and you don't repent, it's like a hot iron that passes over your heart. And, and, and with this hot iron that passes over your heart too many times and you, you reject the Holy Spirit, 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 there can come a time in your life where you no longer, your heart has become so hard that you no longer want repentance. And that's what this verse is dealing with, those that have become apostate, and they've turned away. In chapter 6, the condition is the same. They tasted, and they saw God was good, and they knew that they, they experienced the Holy Spirit, and they came to faith, and they turned, uh, and they went back to their old lifestyle. And for those, the Bible says it was impossible to renew them again to repentance. That their hearts had become so hard that they would. You know, Pastor Gerald tells a, a story about an 80-year-old woman who came, and she hadn't been to church in 60 years because in her 20s, she felt like she committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And she was bawling and she was in tears. And she said to Pastor Gerald, she said, I'm going to hell because I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he looked her right in the face and he said, you've not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that for sure. How do you know? I didn't tell you what I did. And he said, I know because you want forgiveness. Because you want to be made right with God. And if, you want, if there's anything left in that heart of yours that wants to be made right with God, you've not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and God will receive you again unto himself. And so here again, we have this, again, tough verse, but again, I'm just going to say that, you know, the way I see this, this is those, and we're all guilty of sinning willfully, so they can't just be everybody. They've returned to their former faith, knowing the truth. They want to return again to a legal relationship with God. And they've become apostates. And for them, there, there's, there's no returning them again to repentance. In verse 27 it says, But a certain feel, fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace and so again these are hard hearts and he draws a comparison between the blood of Jesus and the New Testament 
and the law of Moses in the Old Testament in these two verses. And in the law of Moses, if you spoke against the law of Moses, by the witness of two or three, the punishment was death. We have an example. If you want to read it later today, write down 1 Kings chapter 2. In 1 Kings chapter 2, there's a famous um, king in Israel who was very bad. His name was Ahab. And Ahab had a famous mistress who was a wicked witch who the dogs ate her flesh eventually. And she's known in the Bible as Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit. How many of you guys name your daughters today Jezebel? Don't do it. She's a wicked witch in the Bible. And, and her husband was the king of Israel. And her husband wanted um, a piece of property that owned, it was a vineyard, and, and, it, and it belonged to um, Nabal, and Nabal wouldn't sell the property to the king. And Nabal said, no, that property's been in my family for generation after generation. Who am I to sell it, even to the king? And the king went home in 2 Kings chapter 2, and he was whining, and he was upset. I want that property, and Nabal won't sell it to me. And Jezebel is hearing it, and she said, man, stop acting like a baby. You're a king of Israel. Start acting like a king. So she goes, and she hires two scoundrels to go to the courts, and say they heard Nabal blaspheming the prophet, I'm sorry, the law of Moses. And sure enough, he went to trial, and these false witnesses said they heard him blaspheming against the law of Moses, and according to the law of Moses, if you blasphemed it, you were put to death. And, and Jezebel had Nabal put to death, and then she took and she went and she took the property and gave it to her husband. And so the writer here of Hebrews is citing this law in the Old Testament and saying in the Old Testament, even with the witness of two or three, how terrible is it if you even blaspheme and you talk bad about the law of Moses? How much worse if you take the blood of Jesus and you trample over the blood of Jesus to, to ignore the call of God and, and, the, and this call that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again? Lydia loves this example, but it's not for me. One of my pastors gave it, and it's one of those examples that just sticks in my heart. But it's what it says right here in the Scriptures. And the example is the warm blood of Jesus is being trampled under your foot. So you take your shoes off, and you have to literally walk and trample through the warm blood of Jesus to deny the work and to deny the call of Jesus over your life. For those that are in hell, they didn't get to hell lightly. Jesus did everything in his power to keep humanity from going to hell. And people think that Jesus is this tyrant who, you know, either obey me or go to hell. And quite opposite is the truth. Jesus gave everything and to this day gives everything and laid his own life down. And the Bible is clear here in other places that if you go to hell, you literally had to trample through the blood of Jesus to get there. That you had to deny the work of the Holy Spirit calling and drawing you many, many, many times. And the day of judgment, if you stand before God and you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you don't have Jesus in your heart, when the Father looks at you, guess what he's going to see? He's going to see your sins. Or he's going to look at you and he's going to see Jesus. And if he sees Jesus, your lawless deeds and your sins, I will remember no more, will apply over your life. And those sins won't be remembered in heaven. Nor will Jesus remember them. You don't have to worry about if you, were, if you were a schmuck while you were here. As long as you got Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And once you have Jesus, you don't want to sin anymore. Once you have relationship with Jesus, you want to walk right. You want to, you want to change. You want to be somebody. You know, you know my testimony. I grew up with a single mom and eight kids, the south side of L.A., and 
My brothers were selling drugs in the neighborhood. My sister was a heroin junkie in the neighborhood, and that's the house I grew up in, and that's the way I was headed. And when I was 20 years old, by the grace of God, miraculously, with, with no Christians in my life, no real Christian influence, I gave my heart and life to Jesus alone in my room at 20 years old, coming down off of drugs. And I can remember my friends in L.A. calling me about a year later and, and still stuck in the same position we were and saying, Chris, what did you do? How did you come off of drugs? How did you, how did you change your life? And at the time, being a Christ follower for a year and barely being delivered myself, I, I just told them, uh, Jesus, Jesus. But here is the truth. I didn't go to AA. I'm not knocking any kind of programs out there, okay? I didn't go to any programs. I didn't, I didn't go to any kind of classes. I got around Christian people. I started reading my Bible. I started going to church on Sundays. I moved in with the Christian family who was, who was helping a 20-year-old kid who had been addicted to drugs for the last four years and, and, and were loving on me. And I was going to church with them. I got a job. I started working. I was reading my Bible every day. I was journaling every day. And six months later, I looked back and I said, I haven't done drugs in six months. Not, not because I, I just didn't want to just got when God, God began to work in my life, I didn't want to do those things anymore. It wasn't who I was anymore. God was changing my life from the inside out. And I just didn't desire those things. And it was just through the work of the Holy Spirit, of giving my life to the Holy Spirit, that God began to change me. And people, you know, again, people just don't understand or believe. They can't, for whatever reason, wrap their mind around this amazing grace of God. No matter who you are, where you are, that God's grace is sufficient for you and God has said of you, you, you can't sin. In order to prove it to you, one of the things God did was he took the most scoundrel people and he called them and he used their lives, the most amazingly um, people in all the Bible. The Apostle Paul, when God called him, was a murderer. I talked to folks recently, I've talked to folks around here and, I, you know, and the subject comes up, what is the worst sin? And they say, oh, it's murder, right? And I say, well, I, I don't know. Paul was a murderer and God used him greatly. God forgave him. I've heard of some crazy stories of, you know, do you guys hear Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to Jesus in prison? I hope that guy's not my neighbor in heaven. <laughs> but I don't have a doubt that he's there. I don't believe in the amazing grace of God that God won't forgive him. I just hope I don't have to live close to him. And, uh, yeah, all right. So, Verse 30, again, having to walk through, and again, don't forget it. The Son of God underfoot um, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So, again, there's a process that you have to do to walk away and to not receive the Lord in your life. In verse 31, 30, it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One more time. I want you guys to read verse 31 with me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One of the most famous sermons in human history was a sermon out of this verse. And, and the word living it says, it, it was changed to angry. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so talking just about the fear of God in our lives. So you guys can pull that sermon up if you want. It's like from the 1800s. Um, he would read the sermon. It was dry. It was monotone. It was no life in it. It was just matter of fact. And people by the thousands of droves would begin to weep and repent in the Holy Spirit at listening to this sermon. In verse 32, it says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. 
partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproach and tribulation, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. (coughs) For you had compassion on me in my chains. One of the reasons why a lot of people believe Paul wrote it is because Paul often wrote in chains, and so this is a similarity to the Apostle Paul's authorship of the book of Hebrews. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you, re, you may receive the promise. Verse 36 reminds me of the seven letters in Revelation. There's one thing that God says to all seven churches in the book of Revelation. And it says, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. And so this is a a call of God on your life and on my life as Christ followers. We're called to be overcomers. And that's what this verse is saying. There's a need to have endurance and be an overcomer. For me personally, that verse motivates me from time to time. There's times when I'm struggling. There's times when, you know, I, I, I pray for death. And I'm just like, Lord, just take me home. And I'm like, that'd be too easy. I get to walk on streets of gold. I'd be to be with Jesus in paradise. And, you know, and there's work to be done here. God's not done with me here. And then this verse comes to my mind. I don't get to just go home and go to heaven. Not yet. As bad as I want to sometimes, just go to heaven. And then I'm, and then I'm motivated that I need to stay because I want to be an overcomer. I know it's a call of God on my life to overcome. And in order to overcome, I have to endure. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. And God has called you to be an overcomer. And let that motivate your life. Let let you know that as things get harder, as you go through things, that God's call and God's direction over our lives is to endure. To endure the hardship as Jesus did. And Jesus set the amazing example. And we're going to face tribulation. But be an overcomer. And don't give up. It's always too soon to give up. Amen? In verse 37, he says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Who's coming? What, Santa Claus? I'm not talking about Santa Claus. Christmas is coming up. The Easter bunny. Who's coming in verse 37? Is the Bible pretty clear in the New Testament that Jesus is coming back? Super clear, y'all. In verse 38, it says, Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay, this is the same idea of overcoming. We got first in, um, in verse 36, we got the positive encouragement to overcome. Now in verse 38 is the negative portion of that, that if you don't overcome, God has no pleasure in you. The Bible says that if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, that you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And so for all of us, we put our hand to the plow. We've begun this ministry. We've begun this work and this walk in Christ. The Bible says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a promise over your life that God's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. That if you endure, if you hang on, you continue to plow. And we know plowing, we have to look forward. You'll never plow a straight furrow if you're looking over your shoulders. The plow will turn every time you look over your shoulder. And no farmer wants a bunch of crooked plows, furrows in their, in their, in their farm. Neither does God want in your life or my life. We look forward, we stay focused, we endure, we overcome. And, and again, we have these, these warnings that if, you, if anyone draws back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you want that? 
to be spoken over your life by God? None of us do, right? I want to be like King David. This is a man after my own heart, God would say. Something, right? But not, not that God has no pleasure or something that God hates. In verse 39, it says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. The Bible says in a very simple term, if you trust and believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Now, it's 1128, and that's a great stopping point. I said I was going to do seven more verses. What do you guys think? Invite the worship team up. Okay. Hey, so that, that gives us the opportunity to read ahead, okay? So chapter 11, again, is one of the high holy places in all the scripture. It's called the Faith Hall of Fame. For example, Hebrews chapter, um, I'm not Hebrews, Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter in your Bible. And everything you want to learn about love is taught to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everything about faith. Now, why is Paul going to shift gears here and begin to give this testimony of faith in chapter 11? Because he just got through saying that the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther, who's famous, and I always get this wrong, 96 thesis, 92? Not 99. It's anything but 99. 92, 96, give me another number, I'll believe you, but I'm not going 99. 95. Okay, we're going to go with 95. That's good. Martin Luther's 95 thesis Martin Luther was a, a monk in Wittenberg, Germany, a, a Catholic monk. And, and, he be, and he opened the Bible, and he began to read the Bible. And he wrote a thesis of 95 things he read in his Bible that were contrary to the Catholic doctrine that he was currently living in in Wittenberg, Germany. And he wrote out the 95 thesis, and he, and he um, stapled it to the door in Wittenberg, Germany of the, the church. And from there, the Protestant Reformation began to grow wings. It began to grow. And, and part of the Protestant Reformation was just studying the Word of God and living our lives according to what the Word of God said. And, and the thing that changed Martin Luther's life, the radical thing that he finally came to that was an absolute light bulb and a conclusion to change his life is he read this verse that says, The just shall live by faith. And, and that's the crux of who we are as Christ followers in the New Testament. We live by faith, not by works. We're justified by faith, not by works. We walk by faith, not by works. And don't get it twisted. Don't let your, your neighbors tell you that, oh, we don't believe in works. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what I'm saying. We highly believe in works. We just don't believe they save us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.